It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. But of course, if you download the iHeartRadio app, you can take us with you anywhere you go. And you can also be listening on one of the other radio stations that now carry Moment of Truth. We welcome you, as well as anyone listening on their favorite podcast platform or on our SoundCloud. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show a filmmaker, Elba Satora Klua, and she is here to talk about a film she made entitled The Return, Life After ISIS. And this film is going to have its uh, Hot Docs special presentation premiere which uh, at at Hot Docs, which starts on April 29th until May 9th, I believe it is. And so it is one of those films that is being featured. It is a documentary. And it is a documentary about women that are being held in a camp in Syria. And it is quite a compelling film. Elba had uh, unprecedented um, access to these women inside the camp. Now, Elba, I understand that is because you also did a film earlier that uh, focused on uh, the, the, the Syrian uh, fighters. Yeah, yeah, the thing is that um, the, the women that are held in these detention camps, mm-hmm. they are women who joined ISIS. Yes. And when the war against ISIS finished, they were taken to these detention camps. Yes. And these detention camps are, are protected or are uh, um, organized by the Kurdish fighters that were fighting against them, by yes. the, the, the women Kurdish fighters. That's right. And this is why, because of my previous film, uh, I, I was for three years following one of these women, a commander, that thanks to the relationship we built during those years, they, they, I, they allowed me to enter the camp. And yeah, and, and, and that was how the, the, the film was possible. Right. And can you tell us a little bit more about that other film? Yeah, the, that film is called Commander Arian, mm-hmm. and it, it portrays the life of uh, this. Basically, for that film, I spent three years coming back and forth from the, 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 the northeastern Syria region. It's mm-hmm. called Rojava. Mm-hmm. And I spent long times in the front lines where the fight against ISIS was being carried on. And it was a very heavy experience. Um, I, 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 I witnessed... So by by filming Ariane, Ariane is the name of the of the commander. Mm-hmm. I would I, I witnessed the atrocities that ISIS did to civil population and and also to the fighters, especially especially to female fighters. And yeah, and the 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 film basically explains the the story of this woman who at some point gets uh, uh, shot and injured, heavily injured. Mm-hmm. She almost loses her life. Mm. And then it it, 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 yeah, it talks about her missions and what she did before she, she fell wounded. Yes. And so because of the, making that film, you then had access to these women that are kept uh, in, in the camp that we are following throughout this film, The Return Life After ISIS. Yeah. Yeah, so now this, uh, in this region, uh, the, uh, when the war finished, there were thousands, like, around 80,000 women and children from more than 60 different nationalities mm-hmm. that uh, uh, were like surrendered uh, and they were there left without a place to go. Yes. Especially because the governments, most of the governments from 
from where these different women are from, they are rejecting to bring them back because they joined ISIS. So they are considered a threat. So these camps, these detention camps were organized like very fast. Uh, and it's been already more than, more than two years that these uh, women and children are there. Most of these women now deeply regret what they did and they want to go back home and try to have a normal life again. But it's difficult uh, because of, as I said, the countries <clears throat> don't want them back. And what is more worrying about the situation is especially the situation of the kids, mm. because there are many kids that were born under, even kids that were born in the camps or under ISIS, they have not seen any other reality. And they are there without schooling and yeah, without the normal life conditions. So it's uh, this repatriation is very urgent. Yes, and we, we of course get to see the conditions that they're living in, but, but also we, we get to see some of these women from different parts of the world that are in these camps, including Canada, the United States, the United Kingdom, uh, Norway. Uh, these women that that fell into the idea of, well, for a number of different reasons, I guess, wasn't it? Some were going to help. Uh, some fell into the, the ideology, the ideology. Of, of, of what they were going to and found out that it wasn't it, it turned out not to be that. It was a fraud that they were being shown. So there was a propaganda that they were being fed. But they were also, some of them, quite young. Yeah, that's the case of Shamima. She was, yeah. uh, Shamima is, uh, Shamima Vigam, she's mm-hmm. from the UK. And, uh, and she was only 15 when she was, uh, like, trafficked, taken yeah. there. And uh, at the age of 15, she crossed to Syria and she was married because the role of woman in ISIS was basically to get married to the ISIS fighters and, yeah. and, have, kid, and have children, give yes. them children. So, yeah, it's, 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 a very, uh, it's a very inhuman situation for all, for all these women. Now, you mentioned uh, Shmima and, and her story. We get to, of course, meet her. We get to see her, I believe, at the beginning of the film as one of the new women that are brought into the camp. Yeah, exactly. Shmima is, is one of the, the protagonists of the film, yeah. And so we get to follow her story as well as other stories in, in the film over as we get to see. Uh, it transpires over about three years that, that we follow this story, yes? Yeah, the, the, the film focuses on the story of six Western women yep. who are now in this detention camp. One is Shamima Vigan from the UK. There is Kimberly Polman from Canada. There is Huda Muthana from the US. And then Nawal and Hafida from the Netherlands. And uh, with that from Germany. And the film, what the film follows is a very special process uh, through uh, in which a Kurdish woman, uh, and we have to remember that the Kurdish are the people or the community that uh, lost more under ISIS. They lost friends, family, and their, and their cities were destroyed. So it, it's uh, very inspiring and also uh, like, how to say it? It's like, for me, it's a, like a lesson of uh, humanity, mm. how this same Kurdish people now in the aftermath of the war and uh, after all the violence they've been through, they are able to uh, look at their enemies because um, this woman, like 
they while they joined ISIS, they 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 were part of a group that that killed many many people in the region, and mm -hmm. especially the, the Kurdish that were fighting against them. So this same Kurdish women now are able to not only uh, host these other women in these camps, but also to give them the chance through workshops and through other activities that are held in the camps to give them the chance to heal, to give them the chance to express uh, what they went through, to listen at them and to try to understand the reasons that took them there. Right. Uh, so that the, the, what the film does is to follow uh, one of these workshops that was held in Roshkam. Uh, and through the workshop, we, we, lear we learn and we understand the stories of these six women that I mentioned before. Yes. Now, the woman, one, the main woman that we see in the workshop is Savannah, and we, we see her. And, you, you know, that's one particular moment in the film when I believe she goes to speak with her, her father, I believe it is, or, or a relative. And her father says it's it's thrown upon us and we are the ones that are that have to deal with this and we have to do so without without vengeance, without, you know, holding without the feeling of revenge. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hmm. And at the end, it's like it's 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 true. Like after so much violence, the only way out, like you cannot get out from the violence with more violence. Hmm. The, 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 you need to find another way out. You need to find a way of resolution that involves uh, forgiveness, that involves pardon, not that involves uh, uh, yes, try, trying to give a second chance to the other side, not to. And I think that's that's the that's one of the messages of the film, no? That through uh, the the Kurdish character Serinas mm -hmm. and the way she treats them, yes. I think it's it's a it's a lesson of how to deal with these very very extreme and difficult situations. Yeah. What was your takeaway from meeting these women and knowing what how they got involved or or being part of ISIS, uh, and then. You know, and then seeing them at this point, what was your takeaway from that? Uh, for me, it was also a, a big journey I, I took along them. Uh, when I first started this film, I didn't, I, I had no sympathy at all for mm. the woman who mm. decided to join ISIS. I, it was very hard for me to understand their, yeah. their reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, I felt, uh, I didn't even felt uh, curiosity to hear what they had to say. Mm. And I wanted to focus mainly on the uh, Kurdish um, um, mm, character. Right. But as I as I spent time there with them, and I, as I I was part of this workshop, and I start to hear what they had to say, and I start to feel them, and I, I and I realized that all those women were themselves also victims of uh, a network that had. Uh, um, that had uh, convinced them, that had brainwashed them, that mm. had lied at them, and that they were somehow, they were trafficked as yeah. women. They were uh, brought into Syria uh, in the middle of a war. They were forced to marry, and then when, when their husbands would die because they were fighters, they would, they would be forced to marry again. And and when I, I understood all what they went through, I, 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 felt, I felt that... Uh, they already paid for what they did mm. and that they need to go back because they really, because they regret. And, and I know that not all the women 
do regret that there are still some women who are faithful to the ideology that took mm -hmm. them there, mm -hmm. but they they are not they are a minority, and I also feel that they might change if they have some hope ahead mm. of them. Mm. And I, I I also like as I said the kids. There are so many kids, thousands of kids that they don't deserve to be there. Mm -hmm. And it's not uh, like the future that they, they can have if they, if they stay there. It's very dark yeah. and it's not uh, what we want. I, and, and that's why I, for me it's hard to understand why the West is so reluctant to bring them back. Because the aftermath of... Uh, leaving them for an, an, I mean, an unknown period of time in these camps and having these kids growing up there, that, that's not positive for anybody. Mm. Not for the kids, not for the women, but not also not for the West. Um, because these kids will be women and men someday and what they can learn there is not, uh, it's not going to help mm. them to get away from the, the one of the ideologies that had been more brutal and mm -hmm. uh, yeah radical so i think that is urgent that we bring back women and children that i also feel for what i saw there that most of the women are desperate to go back to a normal life and they are willing to uh, um, they are willing to no, normalize like that they are willing to to to, to bring their give their kids a normal life as well mm. and also on the other hand I, I i also think it's necessary that we do a deep exercise to try to understand why this happened and why so many women many young women went there and and this woman can help us understand this and also they can help us uh, understand how these networks work and they can help us preventing these things to happen again so I only see positive things in bringing them back. I think they are uh, super necessary right. back here. Mm. Mm. And yet there is, because it is ISIS, uh, that's what it really seems to be is this, this the, the West seems to be focused on the idea that these were brides of ISIS. Yeah. Yeah, but especially if we want to prevent this to happen again, like it's, it's, it's better to... Uh, open a, a, a dialogue mm. with the people that once mm -hmm. were inside and yeah. now they want to go out and away and uh, yeah and it's, it's it's proven and that's something it's said by a specialist that um, to repeating the yes. crime let's say it like this yes. mm -hmm. in, in, in cases of terrorism it's really rare like when somebody gets out of the network with, where they were it's very strange that they fall back again into it. It's different mm. from other other kind of crimes where the the yeah. ratio of repetition is yeah. higher. Now, these women that we meet are all from outside of the area. They all came from different countries, Western countries, Canada, the United States, the Netherlands, uh, Great Britain. And they went to this region. In fact, you know, at the beginning of the film, we see uh, Shamima. Actually, we I think we see part of her story of actually leaving Great Britain and going uh, and how she she is uh, secretly brought in uh, to to join ISIS. I'm, I'm wondering, because they are outside of the area, is I, was ISIS specifically tar trying to target women from the West at all? Or, and why? Why were they trying to bring more women in? 
women were necessary to give the caliphate children. And because they were trying to build the idea of a state, like the, that's why they were saying the Islamic state. So in a real state, there should be a, 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 a real life with families mm. and schools and uh, like economic activity. So and that was was what they were selling. No? They was they were in their propaganda videos. They was they were saying that life there was normal. That there were houses for everybody. That they were uh, work possibilities for everybody. And yeah, and women were especially important for the to, to make mm-hmm. children. Mm-hmm. Now, the Canadian woman, Kimberly, that we see in the film, she is not a young woman. She is a mother that has some grown children. And um, and she can't sort of fall back on that naivety that the, some of the other women could and young girls yeah. could. Yeah. For, for me, it was the reason that it was very difficult for me in the beginning to understand Kimberly. But what I felt after meeting her for quite a long time is that Kimberly is not mentally, she's not very stable. Mm. And that, yeah, that she has, she's vulnerable. She mm. is a vulnerable mm. woman. And they, this kind of uh, networks, they have recruiters that can detect this kind of vulnerabilities. And mm. they, and they, and they saw that she was a kind of person that was, that could be easily convinced right. from any, anything, yeah. And manipulated. No, so, I, yeah, I, yeah, exactly, manipulated. And that's what I felt from, I mean, Kim, Kimberly was not, was not psychologically and emotionally was not yeah. stable when I met her. Right. And after talking to her family, they confirmed that this was coming from much before. Yeah, no, it's pointed out that, that she's actually, I think, raised as a Mennonite, um, if I'm not yeah, mistaken. Yeah, 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 yeah. Kimberly talks about her childhood. As a, she has very beautiful memories from her childhood. Yeah. And the reason why she converted was that she she found, uh, she, she divorced. She, 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 was a, she had her, her first kid as a... As a on, uh, uh, I don't know how you say it in English. Only mother? I don't know oh, yes. Yes, yeah, single mother. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Single mother, and then she found in the that there was a Muslim community where she was living, and mm-hmm. she got friends there, mm-hmm. and she just found a welcoming context and environment mm-hmm. there, and she and she converted. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. I'm your host, David Moses. This is Moment of Truth. My guest on the show is Alba Sorta Cuba, and we are talking to her about her film, a documentary film, The Return, Life After ISIS. It's a film that is getting its Canadian premiere at Hot Docs this year, which runs from uh, April 29th until May 9th, I believe it is. And so you can find out more about the film by going online. I recommend you uh, check this film out and make sure you see it. Uh, It is a film that is somewhat difficult to watch because of the stories it it really does make you think and really does make you question yourself about these women and the the situations that these women find themselves in that must have been very difficult for you to sit through and and hear and and hear about these women's stories as well yeah yeah it was heartbreaking sometimes like just to (sighs) Yeah, to 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 hear so much pain and 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 also to hear how that they had to go through so so uh, such so a strong traumatic situations and and being so young, most of them. Mm. Yeah, it, it it was sad. Yeah. 
I, I think you're right, though, what you were saying about how people can learn and, 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 and that the West could learn from these people. I'm, I'm sure, like so many other lives that we see that are used for examples of uh, how we can learn from situations, they would have so much to offer from inside uh, what was going on, like you were saying, from the ISIS perspective and, and what was going on internally, how it was set up, how it operated. But just the stories themselves, their resilience, uh, how they move forward from all of this, um, how they get beyond it, and and uh, and and what that could offer other people to learn from uh, as we move forward. Yeah, yeah, I think that um, what the film, the message of the film is about forgiveness, and it it opens this. I think when you watch it, it makes it asks you like. Will you be ready to forgive? Mm. Uh, I don't know your worst enemy, yeah. and and mm-hmm. and will you be ready to listen? Will you be ready to put yourself on the shoes of the other? Yeah. And yeah, and I think that uh, as I said, Sevinas, the Kurdish character, and through her, she's a, she also struggles. She also like actually, I I I can explain how the the the, the process of filming was also difficult for all of us. Mm. And in the same way that Sevinas, while she was doing her workshop, was also struggling with what she was doing. Yes. Our crew were mixed. We were an all-female crew. Mm. We were all women. Mm. But half of us were coming from Barcelona and the other half were Kurdish. Mm-hmm. And, and for the Kurdish woman in the team, it was difficult in the beginning. They, 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 for instance, the first time that the, the woman in the camps offered us food mm. and and they said, oh, we, we are, are we going to accept food from ISIS women? You know, these mm. this kind of things. We all had lots of prejudice. Sure, sure. But then you realize that when you leave all of this uh, aside and you just look at the other person as a human being like you are, then all what we share becomes much more bigger, much, much, much more present than the small things we don't share, the small differences we have that mm. have to do with probably what where we grew up or some yeah some and and this is very important as a as a as a driving force of how to uh, live no it's like trying to focus on what we share yeah. and, and and leave aside what yeah. separates us hmm. And, and, you know, that Sevenes and her struggle to work there, to be there, to help, um, how is she, when you finally finished this film and, and were leaving, uh, what was your sense of, of where she was in her own journey at the time? Well, I think for her it was heavy um, to, uh, to be able to, like, for I think that in the beginning when she was, working for her it was a work because ideologically as a woman Mm. she felt that she cannot leave another woman uh, uh, like behind even Mm. if is the this other woman has a very different way of seeing the world than than herself but there was something that she wasn't she didn't expect when she started her job and it was that she will actually make a friendship with this other woman and this was what was uh how do you say it was uh, um, conflicting yes. inside her because it's like wow is it good is it okay that I'm making a friendship yeah. with women who were part of a group that killed my 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 people no yes. that yeah. and this start like this made triggered many many thoughts and yeah. feelings and emotions inside yeah. her 
and at the end, I think she, with all, when, when she embraces them all, and it's like, no, it's like, yeah, I, I mean, we, I, I forgive you, no, I, I, let's, let's go ahead, let's mm. go, let's keep going together, no, mm. let's overcome this together. And at this point in time, do you know if, if anything has developed in terms of getting help or, or these, these camps being, uh, you know, uh, either improving yeah. and or the women being allowed to return? Has there been any action to move that forward? Or are they still in the same situation? Uh, all the women in the film are in the same situation. Nothing have, has changed for them. Uh, it's true that slowly there are some women that are being repatriated, but, but, but the process is very, very, very slow. Yeah. And the situation in the camps is just the same. Like it's, uh, the conditions are not mm-hmm. uh, at all, yeah. especially for the children. Yeah. Uh, they are, yeah, they are not, uh, there, 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 are, there, there is, in camp there is a little school for kids, but the, these kids there, they speak so many different languages. And of mm. course, there are no, no tools to teach these kids. Right. But they come from so many different countries and they, they speak languages that no, nobody in the camp speaks. So, yeah, it's just very difficult. How, how is it being funded? Where, do the, where does the food and the water and the supplies come from for these people? Um, the part of the supplies come from the Kurdish administration mm. that are uh, uh, ruling in the northeast of Syria. Mm. And of course, there is also some international aid, but not like in little yeah. Yeah. for the amount of people that they have to take care of because yes. of the, the that region is not officially a yeah. region. No, it's not. Yeah. So the, the, the governmental um, inst- uh, organizations have have it very difficult to bring mm-hmm. yeah. sources to the to the camps yeah and as you say the children are are one of the main concerns here uh, and not only for their their uh, their upbringing and the conditions that they're living in but their education as well as uh, their their position of having a homeland their their nationality um, is, is that a question for them as well um I think the kids. Uh, I'm. I don't. I'm not sure that they are aware of mm. the, the, the 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 state of things. Mm. They. Uh, I mean, they, they, for them, it's uh, somehow they are. Uh, I mean, they, they, there is. It's their normal. From, it's, it's their. That's yeah, just what they know. They, yeah, the, the, I think when you're a kid, you normalize anything that you yep. go through, even if it's very, very heavy. No, yep. it's yeah. yeah. Yeah, very true. Um, and so um, the situation remains. Uh, how are you? Are you still in contact with them at all? Yeah, 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 yeah. And they have watched the film, and yeah, and they give me updates on their cases. Yeah. And and what do they say about the film? What do they? They actually they they liked it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was uh, very strange for me as a filmmaker. I always like to watch the film for the first time before it's f- even finished with the with my protagonist. Mm-hmm. But of course, it was impossible to go to the to go to the camps. So yep. I send it, and they watch it. Right. Uh, but yeah, but they like it, and uh, I'm happy about it. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it. And, and congratulations on the film. And thank you so much for making it. Thank you. And that is the voice of Elba Sorta 
Klua, and she is the director and filmmaker for The Return, Life After ISIS. You can see it at the uh, Canadian premiere for Hot Docs, uh, running from May 29th until May 9th. I'm your host, David Moses, and thank you for listening to this part of the show, but please don't go away, because we're going to be right back with more right after this. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 106.5 Toronto, 95.7 Ottawa. And of course, if you download the iHeartRadio app, you can take us with you anywhere you go. It's a pleasure to welcome back to the show someone we haven't had on for quite some time. In fact, we were discussing this by email uh, before we came on the show and set up this interview. Uh, he was on the show some time ago, and I'm, I'm sorry, I cannot remember what the article is we were talking about, but I'm sure it must have been one of the articles that he authors in the conversation, because that's what we're talking to him about today. We have with us Timitope Oriola. He is the editor-in-chief and the Journal of African Security and Associate Professor at the University of Alberta, and he is a recipient of the Governor General of Canada Academic Gold Medal, which was first awarded by the Earl of Dufferin in 1873. And he is a researcher focuses on policing and use of force, terrorism, studies, and armed insurgencies. So that sets us up for the conversation that we're going to talk to him about today because he has authored an article in the conversation that is entitled Justice for George Floyd, Derek Chauvin's Guilty Verdicts Must Result in Fundamental Changes to Policing. So it is a pleasure to welcome back to Moment of Truth, Timitope Oriolas. Thank you very much, David. I'm delighted to be back. The article that that you authored recently is one of six articles that I just noticed that you actually have authored over the last few months in the conversation. Uh, that, that is correct. Um, they, they tend to be articles that are, are put together specifically for the conversation to um, essentially distill available knowledge regarding topical policing-related issues. Mm. Uh, and that comes from the recognition that a lot of the um, standard academic write-ups ranging in, in length from 5,000 to 10,000 words or more mm. uh, are not papers that are necessarily uh, available um, to the average members of the public. And therefore, these shorter pieces in the conversation uh, provide um, members of the public with uh, insight into the kinds of research that we've done. So my team and, and other researchers across the world regarding issues uh, relating to police and policing. And that, of course, is exactly what we're going to talk about with your article today. Now, you start off by talking about the article that the guilty verdict uh, of uh, Derek Chauvin uh, for the killing of George Floyd is a divining moment beyond policing. What do you mean by that? Well, oh, absolutely. Um, now, first of all, um, as the lead prosecutor made clear in his closing argument, um, this was a, a pro-police trial. Mm -hmm. And I will, in fact, add that the outcome is a pro-police verdict. Right. Uh, officers like Chauvin make policing more dangerous for the vast majority of good cops. Mm. Research shows that although policing requires um, the use of force, yeah. excessive use of force makes policing more dangerous. And so um, Chauvin, uh, I argue, should not have lasted as long as he did 
in police service given his poor disciplinary record. Yeah. Um, you don't get multiple chances to abuse your authority in other work environments. And as you may uh, recall, Chauvin had at least 17 cases in his file before May 25th of last year when he killed George Floyd. Uh, and so I believe that his conviction sends a clear message uh, that an officer should treat citizens with dignity and respect. Um, and, um, and the idea of a grown man uh, in his 40s crying for his mother uh, should not have died. That man should not have died under the weight of a police officer. Uh, and there are changes uh, within policing um, that have to happen and changes in the broader criminal justice system. And I'm more than happy to talk about those. The first thing that comes to mind when you put it like that is that it speaks to, like you say, beyond policing. Well, not beyond policing, but it's certainly beyond the officer because when you see his record and you see these things over over time, then you say, well, why has this been allowed to happen? And that goes beyond the officer himself. Absolutely. Uh, and and this is exactly um, the, the crux of my argument. And that is to say that individuals like that uh, ruin policing, they ruin the environment for other officers. Uh, they make uh, a police community relations poisonous. They introduce a modicum of toxicity or poison into those relationships. Um, and um, they, 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 the impact of what they do actually goes beyond any single police organization. Mm-hmm. Um, because the police are not a, a regular organization. They are an institution. And so the actions of a police officer, especially in these days of uh, incontrovertible uh, televisual evidence, those cell phone videos, dash cam videos, mm-hmm. CCTVs and so forth, um, they, they cast police in negative light. And so um, it does not serve policing well to have such an individual in, in, uh, in service. And therefore, the question becomes, why did that individual remain in police service for as long as he did? Uh, he was a walking tr- a tragedy, essentially, mm-hmm. uh, given the lengthy, uh, poor disciplinary record um, that he had. And so this particular case speaks to the need for robust uh, mechanisms for screening in officers and screening out individuals who do not have the desirable qualities so that uh, relatively irritable individuals mm. who um, do not approach um, members of the public with empathy, those who lack the basic skills, um, de-escalation techniques, human relationships, and the kinds of rapport that is needed. Those individuals ought not to be in policing uh, in, in the first instance. So, so th- we've got to get that right vis-a-vis how we um, be on the lookout for the appropriate qualities, appropriate characteristics that officers or potential officers have to possess. Um, the other thing, of course, concerns the disciplinary architecture that is in place mm. when and if these instances of misconduct uh, happen. And now, no um, sophisticated screening mechanism was uh, would leave out everyone or who should not get in. There could be a few who might get in who shouldn't in the first instance. And so the onus is on us as a society to ensure that we evolve a mechanism that sees out those individuals, recognizing that uh, it, it does no one no good to uh, keep such individuals uh, in police service. And this was where the Minneapolis um, Police Department failed miserably 
globally uh, in its responsibility to the public. That individual uh, had demonstrated over and over again that they were not fit to be a 21st century police officer mm. uh, and therefore should have been let go much longer than that. Um, and of course, the, the case also speaks to issues beyond policing, specifically issues in relation to the trial by jury system. Uh, now, the fact that despite the overwhelming video evidence, no one, none of us was sure of the outcome is in fact quite troubling because of the complexities uh, of the trial by jury system um, and the way jurors are selected and, and the, the room that it gives um, for um, uh, sentiments uh, that, that may not, in fact, uh, be in sync with the evidence that's uh, provided. And the fact that most people heaved a collective um, sigh of relief after that verdict shows that um, there is something within the trial by jury system that needs to change. Um, I believe that Japan um, has uh, a much more robust and sophisticated system where they have six lay judges or jurors, average members of the public, and, and match those with three professional judges. A majority of the lay jurors and a single professional judge is all that you require to secure a conviction or otherwise. Uh, I believe this is a much more um, a useful and pragmatic way to proceed. But the idea that a single one of those 12 jurors might have led to a different outcome is quite scary, quite frankly. Um, and, and so um, while the system worked in this instance, and because all 12 jurors were convinced uh, of Derek Chauvin's guilt, uh, I do not think we should give room for the, the tyranny of a single juror, the tyranny of a single individual who could have uh, led to the production of an entirely different outcome. Uh, we've seen this play out before. Uh, you may recall the Eric Garner case in New York. Uh, a grand jury, despite video evidence, could not find its path to, to convict um, uh, that officer, uh, or rather to ask that the case move forward, that mm. there was, in fact, no trial a priori. There was no trial because the grand jury could not uh, agree that uh, a crime had been committed despite the use of a, a tactic, a chokehold that had been explicitly banned by the NYPD long before the incident in which uh, Eric Garner was killed. So, um, so we, we've got our work cut out for us. This is not just a, 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 an exclusive policing matter. There are issues in relation to the, uh, uh, the court system and, and the processes we have put in place, but also beyond that, the, the uh, psychological screening processes and the, the mechanisms of uh, discipline that are imbued uh, in policing organizations. Right. I want to go back to a couple of things that you mentioned earlier. Uh, you mentioned this toxic, toxic environment. And if we look at this, much like you said in your article and how the prosecution addressed this, that the trial was pro-police and not anti-police, does it allow the police force to breathe a little easier by saying this is pro-police? Uh, you know, by saying, we're not coming at you, we're trying to work with you kind of thing. Right. I mean, and, and I'm not, um, and I always in conversations like this, I always try to uh, provide nuance to ensure that we do not conflate the Canadian environment mm. or landscape with the U.S. landscape. Mm. Um, uh, the U.S. police um, acquired a reputation for brutality uh, uh, many, many decades ago. 
uh, it is a well-earned uh, uh, mm. reputation. Mm. Um, while we do have issues within Canadian uh, uh, police and policing, um, they are not at the same scale or magnitude as what the, the issues uh, plaguing uh, U.S. police. There are over 18,000 police departments in the United States. Now, but, but you know, to address your question um, directly, um, this is a police uh, or pro-police verdict um, because it does send a signal um, that no one is, in fact, above the law. Mm. And that you cannot claim that if um, a suspect is resisting when you have the full weight of your body on their neck mm-hmm. uh, and you have a hand, your hand, in your pocket, Right. Um, and yeah. with just that casual look, that lack yeah. of dicical attitude as life was snuffed out right. of a fellow human being. Mm-hmm. Now, and I say that in, in, in large part because of the transnational, transgenerational and transracial outrage that followed that killing. Mm-hmm. This wasn't the first time that we were viewing a recording of the death of an individual right. in the hands of the police. Mm-hmm. There was a reason why it shocked our collective conscience, regardless of who you are, who, uh, your station in life, your social class, and so on and so forth. At, um, at a humane level, you were shocked. Mm-hmm. By the 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 just the nonchalance, the the very casual attitude to human life, yeah. um, and as somebody puts it, the, the indifference, the, yeah. the stifling indifference that was demonstrated. So, so I believe that this this does send a very clear message. Um, to have done otherwise would have been to promote a level of impunity that we've, we've never seen before. Yeah. Uh, but but it's fascinating um, that despite that verdict, killings still continue. Yeah. So hours before um, the Derek Chauvin verdict, we now know that uh, a teenager was killed uh, in Columbus, Ohio. She mm. was only 16. Mm. Uh, a few days after that, another incident um uh, um, was out. As, as I turned on the TV earlier t- today, I noticed there had also been another incident. And the lawyers for that family at, um, that had suffered a loss um, were on, on CNN talking about the loss and demanding that the video of the incident be released. So mm. um, the verdict um, on um, Derek Chauvin will not solve all of these issues, right. but at least. Um, it it enhances the likelihood of greater accountability, and that uh, hopefully people will be a little more circumspect uh, in uh, looking at the, the humanity of the person in their custody um, to not snuff life out of them uh, without any justifiable cause. Uh, policing power is is a fundamental power. It is the power of the sovereign uh, in the hands of each and every uh, police officer. And you, there's a lot of responsibility that comes with that. And therefore, we should be careful uh, about the selection process of those we give that power to. Um, because abuse is a real possibility. But if we can put in place accountability measures within police departments and within the criminal justice system uh, in general, I think that we, we stand a good chance of ensuring that uh, these kinds of incidents do not occur with the uh, level of frequency with which they do at the moment. Mm. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. This is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest here on the show is Timitop 
Oriola. He is the editor-in-chief of the journal African Security and associate professor at the University of Alberta. Talking to him about an article he authored in the conversation entitled Justice for George Floyd, Derek Chauvin's Guilty Verdicts Must Result in Fundamental Changes to Policing. Timitop, one of the things, going back again to the, the toxic environment that you referred to and, 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 and how this goes beyond policing, I'm wondering about the the toxic environment it has created from this for not only police, but for the public and the, that lack of trust overall that we saw, because this wasn't, the you know, we saw protests right around the world. This wasn't limited just to the United States, it, it, although it happened there. We saw people right around the world saying this, this has to stop. Right. Yeah, I mean, so on one hand, uh, it, that killing, that incident, um, the very public and highly performative uh, asphyxiation of, of George Floyd on the streets of Minneapolis by Derek Chauvin uh, galvanized a transnational, transgenerational support uh, for police reforms. Uh, and in fact, issues in relation to decolonization and, uh, uh, and of course, taking down uh, um, uh, historical monuments. And so, so this mm-hmm. became the umbrella, the, the galvanizing force for, uh, in certain cases, seemingly unrelated issues. Um, but on the other hand, it, the, the, the incident also uh, revealed uh, some of the fundamental divisions of society. Uh, there was a group, for instance, uh, in the United States that staged a mock incident mimicking what happened to George Floyd. Um, and, and, and that continued even as George Floyd's body was being paraded uh, for uh, eventual burial. Um, now, and, and we find that I find personally that that, that that aspect of things is deeply troubling. Um, there are individuals, uh, who I think, who presuppose that any criticism, no matter how tepid or, or meek of the police, uh, is somehow um, tantamount to being anti-police. Mm. Uh, now, and, 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 and I, I find that quite, quite stunning um, because... We all recognize the significance of, of the police. We all recognize the tremendous risk that they take, the incredible job that, in fact, uh, a vast majority of them do while treating citizens with dignity and respect. But, and so I, 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 I find it somewhat difficult to, to understand why anyone thinks that an individual who kills a citizen in that, in that regard or in that manner um, is somehow doing the, the society a favor. Mm. You, such individuals poison policing. Such individuals are, are, are having us of negative perceptions of the police. They have no business in policing. And so there ought to be a modicum of a unified voice uh, in, in condemning such uh, police violence and asking that fellow officers do the same in order that such individuals do not continue to soil the image of our hardworking police officers. So, so for me, it's a fairly straightforward issue. Um, but it, again, I, I, I find it um, remarkable um, that um, such officers divide opinions in the way that they do. 
Um, this was an individual who was not resisting. He was in no position to resist right. uh, and had been dead for a, a few minutes. And mm-hmm. that, uh, that knee continued to be held on his neck. Yes. And, and, and the question I've asked at other uh, fora was, uh, would you like to be treated in this manner? Would you accept that a, a, a member of your family be treated this way? And so uh, we must not only be opposed to suffering, uh, when it concerns us or, or uh, individuals from uh, um, social categories we identify with, we must condemn and stand against human suffering, period. I want to go back to something that you you referred to earlier, and, and, and it caught my attention, and, and the image hasn't left me yet, and that is Derek Chauvin leaning his knee, George Floyd's neck, and you said with his hand in his pocket. And I remember that now when you say that, and it was very casual. But the word that came to me was arrogant. How arrogant that was! Right, and 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 your your observation is absolutely spot on. Um, I think that there is a, a a kind of arrogance that comes from a limited education uh, and just pure uh, ignorance, and that that person displayed. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you, no one needs a university degree to show empathy, um, to show uh, consideration for fellow human beings. Um, but I believe that that officer uh, demonstrated uh, just a level of arrogance that um, seemingly placed himself on a certain pedestal. Um, and, and, and so it, it, it did seem that he had zero consideration for the, for the life uh, uh, under uh, his knee, uh, and it was totally um, uh, uh, impenetrable um, by the pleas of this 46-year-old man for his life. This man was saying he couldn't breathe, was calling out for his mother, and was in fact at some point saying that, oh, he was going to die. Uh, and all, all the officer could say was to, to tell him to relax. Um, so, again, it, it, this shocks the conscience. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am a sociologist of crime, a criminologist. I am not a psychologist. Uh, and, and I know that even among psychiatrists, you're not expected to uh, diagnose as an individual who is not your patient. Uh, so, and, and given that my credentials are not in psychology or psychiatry, I'm, I'm going to reserve judgment on, on that individual's uh, mindset and, and, and psychopathy or, or lack thereof. But um, what is, what is um, very clear to me, um, and from again, from a purely sociological standpoint, is that why do we have such an individual in policing in the first place? Um, this wasn't his first um, uh, offense. This wasn't the second offense. Uh, there had been 17 instances uh, or cases in this person's file. Why did he continue to be uh, on, uh, on the force? Uh, I think that is a broader question. Uh, why was there such a pro- protectionist racket mm. uh, around this individual? Uh, why was it so difficult to promptly remove such an individual? And David, I'm sure this will come as no surprise to you. You couldn't abuse your listeners multiple times and get away with it mm. on hair. Mm. It, it would not happen. Right. Uh, an elementary school teacher, um, a high school teacher, a lawyer, a medical, none of the medical doctor, none of those professionals gets to do that multiple times mm-hmm. and still keep their license or their right. job. Right. So why do we make an exception in this case? Why are we as a society um, willing 
to tolerate those kinds of behaviors. And, and my argument is a fairly simple, and I've always insisted, pro-police one. These individuals who treat citizens in such shabby ways, in such violent ways, they make policing more dangerous. They give police a bad name. Mm. And so uh, we're doing a major disservice to our police officers by not promptly removing such individuals who show no considerations for human life or have demonstrated over and over again that they are violent uh, and cannot conduct their their, uh, job and use their authority uh, in a respectful and non-violent manner. Well, I guess that speaks to some of the work that has to be done within the police force itself and within these communities where these individuals reside and 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 do you think that is that that is happening do you think that this this will result now in some change within police forces to look at these individuals to make some changes are you hearing any of that at this point in time if that's not I mean, if I may start from here at home in Alberta, um, we have the uh, Police Act Review, which is currently ongoing. Mm -hmm. Uh, I am not at liberty to discuss um, the rudiments of that, Mm -hmm. but um, there are proposals uh, around changes to the Police Act, which uh, we hope would um, um, make a a significant difference in in, uh, the conduct of uh, uh, police and policing in our province. I am aware that I believe it's the state of Ohio um, that has now introduced a bill um, calling for uh, a database on um, on police misconduct, on banning uh, tactics and practices like chokeholds and so forth. Um, The the U.S. House of Reps, I know, has a bill regarding, uh, in fact, named after George Floyd regarding uh, police use of force. Uh, uh, It's unclear if that bill will be passed by the Senate. So um, there are pockets of changes that are being proposed. There are pockets of uh, proposals that are beginning to come out in part uh, as a direct consequence of the killing of George Floyd. And I think the fact that we're even discussing it uh, is is something Mm. as well. And and that conversation, uh, I imagine, uh, will continue for a while. The key uh, point, of course, remains to uh, make um, those uh, proposals into law and to uh, vigorously implement them um, for the good of all. So, uh, so changes are happening here and there. Um, I, I imagine they will be um, evolutionary uh, rather than revolutionary. Um, I, I imagine that, um, that those changes uh, will continue, especially uh, given increasing uh, instances incidents of uh, uh, police-related issues, uh, first and foremost, in the U.S. and uh, and, and also similar some instances of those uh, cases uh, here in Canada. So, but my my advice uh, to all governmental authorities would be to be proactive in making those changes. Let's not wait for uh, another George Floyd moment within our jurisdiction um, to enact these changes. Uh, A lot of these changes are long overdue. We need to bring um, uh, police-related legislations uh, in compliance with best practices elsewhere uh, and in line with uh, 21st century norms. Uh, And and that, I believe, is a path forward in order to improve the relationship between the police and the communities they serve. I do not think um, that conflict between the police and communities uh, is inevitable. 
I think that the relationship between the police and various communities, regardless of, of class or creed, can be a positive one, can be a socially desirable one. Um, but that work has to begin now. Right. Dimitop, we'll have to leave it there, but I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your article in the conversation. And I look forward to having you back on in the near future to continue this. Thank you very much, David. Always a pleasure to join you. All right. You take care. You too. Bye-bye. That's uh, Timitope Oriola. He is an associate professor in sociology at the University of Alberta. We've been talking to him about his article in the conversation entitled Justice for George Floyd, Derek Chauvin's Guilty Verdicts Must Result in Fundamental Changes to Policing. And just to let you know, if you look in uh, the conversation, you will find uh, several other articles by him as well. He has about six articles in the conversation right now. And that is our show for today. Thank you for listening to Moment of Truth on Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, or your favorite podcast platform, or on our SoundCloud, or one of the other radio stations that now carry Moment of Truth. We welcome you all. I'm your host, David Moses. We'll see you again tomorrow. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.